everybody, it's Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says For You. This chat is with Ellen Van Nieven, who you might know as the author of a collection called Comfort Food, which came out in 2016 from University of Queensland Press. That book was shortlisted for the Kenneth Lesser Prize and highly commended for the 2016 Wesley Michael Wright Prize. But Ellen has a new book out, which is amazing. It's called Throat. It's also from the University of Queensland Press. And this interview is mostly about that book. We start off by talking about an area that Ellen hasn't gotten into much in interviews about the book, the love themes of the book, which, as Ellen explains, interviewers have kind of sidestepped so far in discussions about it. So we talk about what it is to write and edit a love poem and also what it took to get ready to write this book and who it's for. We dig a bit into the question of eco-poetics, whether that is a thing worth worrying about. Um, We talk about getting some separation from the work. We talk about queer elders and we talk quite a bit about form, which is something that Ellen is particularly interested in, starting with form and then working out from there. And towards the end of the chat, we talk about how to connect with form if you're a new poet just starting out. So it's heaps in here. Even if you haven't read Throat or you haven't read any of Alan's work, I think there's plenty that you'll find interesting and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. I think where I'd like to start is I've been thinking about the role of the interviewer and the interviewee and the fact that I get to steer the conversation to a certain degree because I decide on the questions. And I wanted to start kind of backwards. I wanted to start from the end and ask you to begin with, what do you want to be talking more about? What's exciting for you to discuss at the moment in terms of poetry? Um, what? Wow, what a question. Big, uh, broad question to start with. Mm, it's, yeah, it's interesting because when you have a book come out, there's all of these different layers. And I think my book is a book that has quite a different, lots of different layers as well. Um, but you have, yeah, you have people that focus on some things more than other others. And I've always been someone who likes to talk about craft like the process of writing a book and different forms and um, for that to be a way into talking about politics rather than the other way around um, rather than people kind of taking the easy route and being like your book is about this and this and this it's like how do I use the form of poetry to kind of provoke and challenge and kind of expose things you know like kind of if you know what I mean. Um, one thing that people haven't been asking me yet is I haven't been talking about sex or love. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, I think um, and the kind of queer queerness in the book and the gender and sexuality stuff is something that I haven't touched on yet in my interviews, probably to come. But, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting how mm, your book is like this, like, onion or something and people are, like, slowly peeling off layers. And maybe I don't want them to 
pull too many layers off at once, otherwise it will, like, hurt. But I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because I have been thinking about that, about um, what people focus on and what I expect people to focus on and, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. That's so interesting that you mentioned because I because the end of the book, the last section, is very sexy and there are some very beautiful love poems there. But you're right, I in the questions I'm looking at that I had planned to ask you, that isn't addressed, but now I really want to go there. Mm. Um, because I think as an interviewer there's a sense of wanting to do justice and wanting to address what I think of as the important themes but of course what I think are the important themes of a book like this are going to be very much informed by my position as a white reader so yeah I'm really glad you mentioned that yeah as you mentioned there's yeah there's there's a five sections in the book that are kind of themed in a way and so yeah, the love poems kind of are nestled together. Um, the poems about like the, you know, the marriage equality stuff that was going on a couple of years ago are all kind of grouped together as well. And I just took inspiration from what was going on the last couple of years and the three years that it took me to write. One of the ones that I really wanted to ask about in that vein is one called Homo FOMO. It's a yeah. very funny poem with I think I think made up titles and um, made up descriptions of what could be a queer film festival like the the films in a queer film festival yeah the form is like a um a program like a queer film festival program yeah with like these kind of little synopses of each film in like poet yeah kind of like poetry form i loved this i'm such a huge queer film fanatic Mm -hmm. and in quarantine i have been trying to tick off a lot of the movies that and we were talking before we started recording about video stores and Mm -hmm. i've been trying to find those films that i was too afraid to hire when i was okay young and going to the video 2000 (laughs) And a lot of them really suck. Like a lot of them, and that's what this poem is so great. Um, That's why it's so wonderful is because what you've managed to do here is to just highlight all these flaws that Mm. like we give queer film a pass because we're like, oh, yes, but, you know, at least it's doing this kind of representation work. And it's like, well, it's not good enough. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's kind of. I find queer film festivals like quite whitewashed and then if they do have kind of diverse films they're kind of quite token um so yeah but at the same time queer film festivals have been like my refuge I still remember the first time I went to a queer film festival when I was like 19 and it was like amazing like the audiences are amazing you know to sort of be in yeah with with like nerdy queer people in like a room like that I think that was my first experience of like yeah being with like queer community but like yeah very kind of yeah kind of like not not very intersectional and I think um kind of 
yeah, people kind of think it's like kind of okay. Like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I kind of really like film programs and I really liked um, kind of messing with the language that is used in those like programs because it's kind of like, yeah, it's like queer humour is like a bit in those programs I feel is like kind of a bit daggy, like kind of like 20 years ago or something, but it sort of gets, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but, yeah, I love film festivals. I love I, – that's what I'm really missing in quarantine. I love, uh, yeah, the sense of community, whether it's like um, – going to like an Italian film festival where it's like lots of Italians or like, you know, like a human rights film festival, like just like seeing that kind of those groups of people together in the cinema, which has been like a very, the cinemas have been like a very kind of racialized space. If we think of like in the context of indigenous people not being allowed in cinemas or having their own kind of section in the cinema, so we think of the cinema as very kind of white-controlled space and a very hetero-controlled space and a very kind of upper-class kind of way. But I love when that kind of those barriers kind of start to shift when we have different communities in cinemas. I was even thinking about um, uh, the movie Get Out, which is one of my favourite movies, and how... Um, yeah, that's what black people say in cinemas when they're watching a film together and they, there's a black character that's, like, going to get killed or something. They're like, get out, get out. Um, so mm, I think Jordan Peele was really smart with choosing that title um, for that film uh, because it represents that experience that, that people were having going to see movies together, African-American communities yeah, I barely made it through that film. I found it so terrifying. <laughs> really? I found it like I think it's like real life. Like for, for me. For sure. Was, yeah, right. Like every like yeah, every meet the parents situation that I've been in, yeah, with a white partner. Yeah. Yeah. Really funny. Yeah. I I do want to ask you about the love poems specifically, okay. and I want to try and bring in that theme of poetic form and craft because mm. I know that's something that you're interested in too and it's something I'm interested in asking you about as well. Um, when you're writing a love poem, my sense from writing them myself is that these are poems that come through you quite quickly but then they, when you're thinking about putting them in a collection, there are questions of mm. how much of this am I willing to keep and I wonder about your own decision-making around that kind of stuff. Like there are poems in here that, that feel like they are written perhaps for or, or just about a specific person or experience. Yeah. How comfortable are you just keeping what you write to begin with as is? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Alice. Um, I think you're right. I think I've written a lot of love poems over the years that were maybe for different reasons. Like they might have been addressed to the person, you know, of my affection or they might have been about processing my feelings about 
um, someone. Um, but they're, they're, def- they're definitely not works that I feel like are kind of public, you know, like there's sort of like all those private love poems that I've written that will never see the light of the light of day because mm, in a lot of cases they're also not very good writing, you know, they're like full with cliches, etc. So in interrogating um, which love poems I was going to include in this collection, they had to do more than one thing, you know, they couldn't it couldn't just be about expressing emotion it had to be they had to sort of be doing something interesting in form and they had to sort of um prove they had to hold their weight with the other poems in the collection and then when you sort of start thinking about the tricky thing about you know which I'm really conscious of I don't think everybody is but for me I'm very kind of feel I have like these hard ethics where I don't want to, you know, if there's a poem about somebody, I don't want them to read it and feel dirty or feel like they've they've been exploited in any way. So that consultation process, that's a weird word, I don't know, but that, you know, talking with people about using their work, using the poems about them is really important for me too. Yeah, it sort of had to fit in with the themes of what I was writing about, which is with throat is very much about like voice and like speaking and um, saying things that I was afraid to say. There's a lot of times in a relationship where that comes up, you know, you're sort of scared to say something to your lover or your partner because you're afraid of what, might be the consequences of that in your relationship so there's yeah there's a couple of poems um about that um yeah yeah that actually reminds me of one of the many that I really really love in the book which is called unsent text messages and Mm. I have to tell you that I actually started a draft called unsent text messages as well yeah, right. <laughs> we may not be the only two poets in Australia or the world who've done that. Um, it's such a great idea for a poem, and I'm so glad that you achieved it and did such justice to the idea. Because um, when I started my draft, I I really wanted to use real unsent text messages, mm-hmm. but then I chickened out or kind of lost okay. the thread. Yeah. Um, how did you write that poem? That's a pretty old poem. I think I was jotting down ideas a couple of years ago and came back to it. It's kind of an easy poem to write because I think as poets we're really intense people and we're intense in our text messages as well. You know, you don't want to sort of like scare someone away with this like really mm, texting a poem to them or like a line from a poem. So I was like, oh, I know that's not going to, like, land well in this situation, so I'm just going to, like, keep it for a poem. <laughs> that's one of the poems that could just be, like, forever continuing. <laughs> I think there's a couple of poems in this book that's, like, they don't really have a finish. I could keep writing different versions of it. Like, there's also a poem called White Excellence, and I feel like 
a lot of people who have read that poem say, say to me, they're like, yeah, this is a poem that could just keep going on and could just, yeah, just sort of not have a finish, finish line. I absolutely loved that one as well. I wanted to ask you about that too. Mm. Um, but maybe now might be a good moment to pause and just hear one of these poems, any, any one at all that you want to read from the book. Um, I'll read unsent text messages. You can still write your unsent. <laughs> I don't know. I think you've done it. You've done it. It's done now. <laughs> Mine was not working. Okay. Unsent text messages. You arouse me more than the internet. Can't I just want to listen to Feist Pleasure and make out with you? I will love you till the indigo in your jeans bleeds and fades. I will be sitting next to you until you stand. Won't be the only time you have me with my jeans off, can guarantee. Walked into a tree thinking about you. Push against my leg, please. I want your rhythm and your pace and your space and your heart, please. Babe. Thanks so much for reading that one. Yeah, there's a, there's a freedom inside a poem to say things that, well, I don't know. I mean, listening to that, I'm thinking, are those things too in, too intense to say to someone else? I don't know. I mean, I'm also a poet, so maybe I'm not the best judge. But, um, it's my aim to find someone that will just not run away <laughs> when I pour <laughs> out my deep, intense, neurotic heart. At least with a book, like, you can do that and people, well, people can throw out your book, I guess, so, but maybe people can just put it down when it gets too much. Yeah, there. well, there are a number of references in the book to caring too much and mm. the idea of being too much. Mm. I I wonder about, you know, thinking about the love poems but just thinking about the book in general, and thinking about the difference in what you're doing here in Throat and what you're doing in Comfort Food, mm. what kind of um, thinking and work did you do as a poet to kind of get comfortable to mm. express these things? Because I feel like there, there are things expressed in Throat that, that are mm. perhaps new for you to be expressing. Yeah, I've been calling kind of throat as this like graduation you know like being able to say things that I wasn't ready to or couldn't in comfort food um and sort of been thinking about you know what's the difference of those two books comfort food you know as you can tell from the title alone has that kind of theme of comfort you know like wanting to you know talking about food talking about family there's a lot of kind of warmth in that book, but also, yeah, there's also discomfort. And then I was sort of, you know, talking about, you know, trying to get sort of a lot of other themes across as well. And I started to think about this book and I was like, mm. I'm particularly thinking about the pandemic, how there's all of these like silly articles about what you should be reading in the pandemic. And it's sort of like all about you know, reading stuff that's like really like warm and fuzzy and funny or whatever and like quite light. Um, and I was thinking, oh, you know, shit, this is the wrong book to bring out in a pandemic. You know, it's like it's very um, – it's quite a 
don't hold back, provocative, um, take no prisoners. So I was like, oh, maybe this book's about discomfort. And then I started to think about it more and realised that, no, this book still has that elements of like wanting to comfort people and sort of getting some feedback from some of um, my readers about how this book makes them feel really safe and makes them feel like really kind of proud that um, I've honoured so many people in this and I kind of think, yeah, there was works in there that had a very intimate audience. I wasn't thinking of this like big general audience. I was writing poems for the people that I loved and thinking about like being all together and sort of like, yeah, sort of like creating that space. And I was thinking I just picked up uh, Deneza Smith's book, Homie, which he kind of, or they dedicate to their friends. And uh, I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is kind of, if there was ever a book that I would dedicate to my friends, it would be this one. Um, because uh, I'm really lucky to have such beautiful, amazing friends that I, I've learned from as well. It feels like whatever I've had to go through in the last 10 years, they've gone through as well. So it was sort of like, you know, if this is the last book I write, at, at least I've been able to uh, try and sort of write this for them, I guess. I feel like there really is a strong sense of that. There is a sense of like, okay, well, I'm going to say the thing now, whatever the thing yeah. is. Um, yeah. Also, just as a sidebar, I adore Denise Smith and I'm, I'm so glad yeah. you brought their work up. It's, yeah, amazing. Yeah, I really like the latest book. Um, so I think uh, I was like, and also our books are kind of twins because my book's like got that kind of, fluoro yellowy green in the the end pages are like this fluoro yellowy green and that's just kind of the same color as their book and they also have some pink in their books so I was like oh we're kind of like twins that's awesome yeah I just wanted to say everything that I want I needed to say even though I knew that these things hadn't been said for a reason because you know there's that kind of fear as well but I wanted to like call out like homophobia, transphobia in the First Nations community. I wanted to talk about like a lot of lot of things that I feel like just haven't really been spoken about, I guess. There's a shift, I feel, in the middle of the book mm. and about the halfway mark there's what you've called a, a treaty of shared power between Throat's reader and author. Um, which is in the section whiteness is always approaching mm. and the treaties followed by a passage that includes questions like what is our relationship with each other what are our expectations of each other and then not they're not questions that you provide answers to perhaps they're not answerable questions at all but what I thought was really interesting was the first half of the book it seems that you're talking on this this broader mm. political level I guess for yeah. lack of a better word and then that treaty is there mm. and once you pass that I feel that you let us further into your world talking about those things like lateral violence like queer representation and and love mm. but that only happens once that once that treaty is addressed 
Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's kind of, I think that's what I was, yeah, kind of going for. The whole time I was writing this book, I was not immune to thinking about what are the contradictions, you know, like I'm writing this book as someone who feels like very, I'm very like proudly Malanjali Yugumbe, very like, you know, anti-establishment, anti-colonial, um, but I'm publishing this book with a um, a university press that is a very, yeah, a very kind of white institution and um, my collaborators in this process are non-Indigenous people. Um, I'm publishing this book. I'm being part of this kind of capitalist system that really doesn't go with poetry as at all, you know, like um, – I'm sort of exploiting uh, trees by making this book. You know, there's all these kind of thoughts that I I really felt like I had to put down, Um, but also in thinking about my reader, I wanted them to think about these things as well. I wasn't satisfied with just writing a book. I also needed to shake things up and think about you know, what is a poetry book? Why am I doing this? All of that, all of those big questions, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And I loved that in that treaty section, you specifically call out University of Queensland Press, which is your own <laughs> publisher. I thought that was, yeah. that was really amazing. That also leads me to another area that I wanted to ask you about, which is there's, there's a poem in the book called Ecopotent. Mm. And there's a, a wonderful stanza in it which reads, label your art eco-poetic. I think it really is eco-pornographic and uh, really articulated a discomfort that I've had with the term eco-poetry since I first heard it. Yeah. I wondered because there there is a a beautiful reverence for, I don't like I don't really know how to talk about this without sounding stupid but like the natural world you know like things like in the poem water on water you mention the things the trees keep giving us wattles hibiscus flowers banks your seed pods like just a, a like a juiciness you know around nature that we live with mm. but then I wonder about that stanza in ecopotent and I wonder how you think about the term ecopoetry is it in any way a useful term to you yeah, oh, good question. Yeah, I feel it's it's a complex one, isn't it? I think mm, eco-poetics in Australia is kind of really quite colonial. So when people, you know, try and group my poetry into this genre of poetry, I feel, yeah, I kind of feel a bit like, mm, no, I don't feel like that's where I want to sit. I guess it could go it can go either way like I feel it just has a a bad rap because even if I think in like say other art forms uh, I recently went to see um an exhibition where you know the theme was around you know the environment you know like all the works were uh, yeah it was actually a water exhibition so all of the works were about water and climate change and that sort of thing but you had some works that were so unsustainable like keeping a snowman in a 
in a freezer. You know, there's a video of um, the artist like burning an iceberg. Like there's they actually set up a, a like a kind of artificial creek in the exhibition itself. These I really saw these white artists as like terrorists and like just completely like doing these very exploitative things for their art but at the same time calling themselves like climate change artists or eco artists or whatever so I'm really um yeah I'm a kind of a hard person to please when I see non-indigenous writers writing about the environment and the country it's like well, are you actually doing something or is it just like pretty words on a page kind of thing? And are you just solidifying what's already been said by your non-Indigenous peers and are you just sort of like making that tradition like are you just sort of bringing that over, you know what I mean? But, yeah, I kind of, you know, I know that I'm also part of that space as well and I'm interacting with these people and some of these people are my friends so yeah it's kind of interesting space I feel mm, there's so many beautiful aboriginal poets that write about country thinking about like someone like Charmaine Paper Talk Green um just gorgeous poet one of my favorite poets Ali Kobi um and I kind of think is that work in opposition with some of these white poets writing about country in a way or are they kind of doing the same thing in a different way or, you know, like I think my main concern is that there's just so much knowledge that's in the wrong hands and so much that has been lost and then when it's reclaimed there's a sense of like, putting indigenous poets in a corner anyway that was a big that was a big rant <laughs> no I mean I I so much of that resonates with my experience and understanding of that kind of work it, it does sometimes feel like poems written by white writers and I would t- totally include myself in this category and the poems that I've written in this category happen in isolation in some kind of like bubble where invasion and questions of uh, sovereignty just don't exist. And um, mm-hmm. it's a very comfortable, you know, I think we keep coming back to that word comfort. It's it's a very comfortable way to write. It's just different motivations. Like when I write about country, I'm motivated. It's almost like, I don't know, the ancestors are, are talking to me or, you know, I feel this kind of comes from the body, I feel. And I feel comforted that I'm following a tradition of looking after country that my ancestors have done for hundreds of thousands of years. And so I sort of see my poetry practice as an extension of what has been done before me. But at the same time, I understand that I'm this like, I'm not afraid to make fun of myself, you know, like being this kind of like, ooh, like fancy, oh, do they think they're like some sort of like fancy Aboriginal intellect with like intellectual with their like glasses and like P 
pink glass what do you call it glass robes like I don't know I've just been someone just called me a New York I said that I look like a New York intellectual the other day so I was like what does that mean but you know what I mean like I'm not afraid to make fun of myself and my positionality as someone that has this like privilege of being able to like just like tap away on my MacBook in my comfortable home and, and I can you know being cut off from country at the moment like not being able to go to the places that I would want to go um, because of quarantine has really made me think about how normally I just have so much access to the work to the, to the world sorry in a way that a lot of my ancestors didn't and so I have that freedom of being able to kind of step in and out of stuff not that I feel like I can I feel like I'm always beholden to my elders and my community but there is that sense that I have I have so so much freedom in a way and so that makes my choices so much more louder the idea that I'm a writer rather than a doctor or a nurse or any any other roles that I could be doing no I chose to be a writer I chose to yeah use the sort of pen and paper and write these poems in a way that, yeah, you know, I know that my work is important for people, but at the same time, you you kind of you can't take yourself too seriously, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are contexts and there are times when taking oneself so seriously just becomes an untenable position mm, because other I, stuff is happening. It just like throws what you're doing into such sharp relief. Um, I really so, important to have a separation between yourself and the work so that you know when people people can like say anything they want about my work and at the end of the day I'll I'd, I'll be okay because you know I'm separated from it um and so I think there is a sense where you know like we do need to have that separation I guess not take ourselves so seriously I wanted to come back to this theme of ancestors that you brought up I'm thinking about the poem in the collection, The Only Black Queer in the World. And I wanted to ask you the same question I asked someone else in an interview the other day. Who do you think of as queer elders, queer ancestors for you? Is there anybody that you think of either in your personal life or in the broader sort of like Mm. world that you can look to and go, this person shows me this person has forged a path ahead of me that I can walk down? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, Firstly, I think about all the people that I don't know and all of the, all of my, like, queer, gender-diverse ancestors um, that I will never know but have come before me and thinking about um, gender and sexuality before colonisation. And then I think about... I think about me as a little baby writer, 19, at the QUT library and somehow the ancestors leading me to um, Lisa Belair's work, the beautiful Lisa Belair, reading her book, Dreaming in Urban Areas, what that meant to me as a young person, as a young writer, as a young black queer person, um, the feminism in that work, 
yeah, all the beautiful – the voice was just so strong. I just remember thinking, you know, I don't know whether consciously or unconsciously, I don't have to be white, be uh, straight. You know, I can kind of just be this kind of a voice of my own and not sort of feel like I have to, like, conform. So that book was incredibly important um, as someone who, like myself, is such a textual person to sort of have that experience in text, in reading, in literature was really fundamental. Um, and so when I was commissioned a couple of years ago to write this um, poem um, marking the anniversary, um, the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras, I really wanted to think about myself as a young person who kind of thought they were the only black queer in the world, as the title of the poem was. I think when you're young and you don't see that representation, you're kind of creating it for yourself, which is what I was doing. But then that poem is a very much sort of starts with the, the singular, the individual, and then moves towards community. And I kind of aim to try and honour as many uh, black queer people, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, uh, queer people in that poem as much as possible and that's another poem that could keep going you know I wish I could put even more names as I look at it now I, I wish I included even more names in that but it's it's so important I think uh, that visibility is out there and I think it's sort of getting more and more um, visible um, but yeah sort of that was a really fun poem to write, and it's one of my favorite poems in the collection. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad I asked about it. Then, yeah. Um, yeah. I want to ask so many more questions about being a baby writer and form and things like that too. Um, but maybe, maybe now would be another good point to pause and read another poem. Yeah. What should I read? Yeah, well, maybe maybe we should hear that one then, The Only Black Queer in the World. Okay. The Only Black Queer in the World. I was the only black queer in the world. I had many difficulties. I didn't know how to tell my family. I hadn't seen Stephen Oliver can't even on black comedy yet. We hadn't watched it together over dinner. TV didn't save me. I hadn't seen Electric Fields perform in a sweaty old meat market with a group of friends who had similar feelings. I hadn't heard Zachariah's deadly voice singing Nina. I hadn't yet read Lisa Belair and cried sitting on the carpet in the library over sharply written work that spoke to me and my experience. I started a blog. I got many comments. People were always asking me what it was like to be black and queer. I hadn't yet started thinking about gender as a colonial const construct or examined my ideas of masculinity and femininity. I hadn't yet realised that my relationship was interracial. I started another blog, thoughts about interracial queer relationships featured. I hadn't yet got a crush on KMT yet and listened to her track that samples Cold Chisel, Will Your Cruel Attitude Last Forever? I wondered if my parents would ever accept my future partners, if I'd ever had the chance to legalise my relationship 
have children, ask for more, not less. Some nights were really lonely and I created Kathy Freeman as a lesbian and Prince as an Aboriginal. I got trolled, deleted my social media accounts, and the only known evidence of black queer existence was destroyed. I hadn't yet seen the doco and Uncle Jack Charles and met black queer elders who knew of a previous time Australians had to vote on the rights of a group of people. These elders knew what it was like to hear their rights discussed by people outside of their group. I hadn't yet worn my flag singlet tucked into my Calvins as a game and fashion statement. I hadn't yet been to Mardi Gras. I saw the white gaze and the white gaze I was used to, and then I saw black queers everywhere, and every conversation was an insight into a black queer past, street becoming a site of multi-time, the past, present beat, the future love, and 40 years of black queer pride spread into more than 60,000 years of we've always been here. My dance joined a big dance. I saw a Radri Yorta Yorta lesbian couple who had been marching since the beginning who chanted stop police attacks on gays, women and blacks in 1978 and they told me off for knowing fuck all. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem and I'm learning the words. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem and I'm learning the words. Every chant is a line of a continuing poem and I'm learning the words. I saw the flag sparkle. I saw gays from everywhere, from Maury to Perth. I saw black Captain Cook, Malcolm Cole in 1988, the year of the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander float. That float should have been the first float that year, but mob didn't open the parade in 2005, until 2005 when Arnie Karen Cook and Arnie Lily Shearer walked out, each with a coolerman of curling leaves, smoking the parade. Right, the small leaf fire was started on the corner of Liverpool and Elizabeth Streets, and in parade time, it never stopped. I thought properly about what it meant to be marching on stolen land, and that Roger Mackay in 1982, when he carried the flag in the march, made the point that the Sydney Gaze Golden Mile was the unceded land of the people of the Aura Nation. It was our modes of community and belonging white queers craved, and this influenced how they made their scenes. I woke up on a mattress in a queer share house with a text from the other black queer asking me to go out on a date. I consumed black queer art and I created it. I saw Parkinji Barkinji artist Raymond Zader's work at the Art Gallery of South Australia and cried. I felt the heavy loss for all the ones killed, murdered, missing, for the erasure of black queers in every capital, every city and town in Australia. And I told myself I was lucky to have stayed alive and I counted the times I thought I would die. I began to know the stories of more and more and more black queers who had died. I knew them as ancestors. I read Natalie Harkins, Yvette Holtz, Nayuka Gori's and Alison Whitaker's writing online and in bookstores. I saw love for black queers everywhere. Outside the city, the sky sent me hints. The walk on country along the river kept me safe. I saw the colours of my own heart and they were not the colours of isolation and fear. Thank you. Thanks for reading that one. I love the line in that poem, and in parade time, it never stopped. Mm. And the way that that poem plays with time, it's all written in past tense, but there is a sense of progression. 
and the the first page is these sort of short stanzas Mm. um quite there's quite a bit of repetition I hadn't seen I hadn't yet read I hadn't yet started and then about halfway through the poem there's this explosion and I, I love the way the poem kind of to me reflects that explosion of recognition and knowledge when you see yourself and you understand that you exist within a broader group within like there, there's more than just one of you <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah and yeah. and it gains it it gathers pace and it becomes like this listing this you know there's this excitement and then it sort of it 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 uh quietens itself down again towards the end mm-hmm. yeah beautiful yeah i think it's kind of very kind of western very like capitalist to try and separate the individual from the community so i think that work does take that kind of space of, yeah, sort of take that trajectory of being this, like, yeah, someone that's kind of been, mm, like, ejected or, like, kind of on their own, um, alienated, and then slowly sort of moving back towards sort of joining this chorus of voices, which I really, yeah, I really love. I also wanted to go back to point that you raised earlier about being a baby writer and I guess it kind of speaks to this idea of feeling very much atomized alone yeah the only person doing this kind of work and also this idea of form so that one of the poems that really fascinates me in the book is is very early on it's called Kermy Chermy sorry I wasn't sure if it was Kermy or Chermy um which is I believe the name of a a Westfield shopping center in Brisbane is that right yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I grew up in Canberra where um I I did a lot of my adolescenting in malls. Mm. What were the, what were the names of the malls? Uh Woden. Woden, okay. Tuggerong yeah. and yeah, if you were really lucky, you might get to go to Civic. Ah, yeah, okay. that was the cool Westfield. one. Okay. And was it, it Westfield or not? Um the only Westfield was actually Adam Belconnen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was, yeah, like so far away as to be another world, basically. But, yeah, I, I love this poem so much because it, it gives shape to this memory that I also have of the significance of these places, right? Like it's a Westfield, but it is also it's, it's family, it's memory, it's change and transformation. And I, I wanted to ask you about the form of this poem Mm. and the way that you use these sort of paragraph-like stanzas which are also separated by slashes. Yeah, it was inspired by um, a Courtney Cena narrative poem um, where she uses the same format with the, um, the slashes her poem I wish I knew I wish I could remember the title of it but my books are sort of scattered everywhere in boxes but it was in an anthology of uh, Maori and Pacifica literature. And, yeah, just, I sort of read it and you don't know whether it's a short story in verse or a poem. And I sort of was like, oh, I really like this form. I think I'm going to try try it out. Um, and it was perfect for this poem, Chermy. And you're right, I think, you know, it's, I've been getting great feedback. This is actually probably the poem that people are most talking about because I'm getting this beautiful feedback from people who, like, grew up going to this shopping centre and having all of the kind of experiences 
that I had, but also people that mm, have never been to Chermi like yourself, but you can, you know, these, these places are so kind of universal that you can just, yeah, insert your own shopping center in there and it makes sense, you know? So I think, yeah, the sort of opening gag of this poem is Westfield Chermi is one of our sacred sites, which is, you know, because we, you know, growing up in this like black family, we've projected this idea of like belonging onto this kind of real fucking like evil kind of <laughs> place. Like it is an evil place, but it's also um, just really, yeah, quite comforting and uh, kind of lots of special memories of like being there with my nana and uh, my aunties and my cousins and me and my brother growing up there, um, friends, you know, all that sort of thing. I just thought, why hasn't anyone done this before? Why hasn't anyone written this ode to Chermi before? Because it's like, yeah, there's so, so many things I could write about this place. Yeah, and it's connected to so much. It's, it connects to your memories of, of going to school and the houses that you knew around that time like yeah it's it's just really stunning I'm really glad it's getting a good reception as well in terms of form and and being a a young writer being a baby writer I I wonder because I think about maybe people who might listen to this podcast who are just starting out writing poetry Mm. and I remember when I started out really not knowing for sure how to approach different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on what people who are just starting to write poetry might do to get comfortable trying out different forms and understanding how form fits with the content of their poet of the poem that they're writing? That's a good question. I think it's like it's about reading heaps, reading yeah, quite do- quite a diverse range of poets and then they're using different forms and then you sort of, yeah, you'll sort of get like a bit of a um, gut reaction sometimes to reading work that plays around with form and you're like, oh, wow, that, well, for me anyway, because I'm fascinated by form, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And then it might in some cases give you an idea for a poem yourself but I think there's some easy forms that can you can kind of practice on like the list poem is just something that's like really there's so many things you can do with a list poem you know like unsent text messages is a list poem you know you could do like a shopping list poem you could do a list of things that you wish you could tell your mother you know like I think uh list poems are really interesting and then thinking about the unexpected, like, yeah, like writing poetry in kind of unexpected ways, like whether, you know, writing a poem about a mall was kind of really like untapped territory. So thinking about like, yeah, just sort of like things that haven't been kind of seen before, like writing a a film program in, in a poem, you know, like, I just try and I don't feel like there's rules. I feel like it's about kind of breaking the rules. 
I really love Charmaine's Paper Talks Green's latest book, which is just like letters and they're sort of responding to letters that her mum wrote her 50 years ago that she found in a suitcase. And there's also poems that are about like taking back documents that were weaponized against her and Yamaji people. For example, the this kind of citizenship form, she has this real deadly response to the, the questions in the citizenship form that her uh, her elders were made to sort of fill in. So there's so much space to be explored and sometimes ideas come to you in the most unexpected ways. I do a lot of journaling. I just kind of write stuff and sort of see where it goes. And, yeah, I think I do a lot of stuff like arts and crafts stuff as well. Um, I'm terrible at art but I feel like it helps me get out of my head to sort of sit on the floor, doodle, do like paint, painting with my hands, uh, scribble, do like mind maps, all that sort of stuff can really invigorate the creative process. Yeah, and it, it is part of the work too, even though at the time it might feel much more like play. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I really found that, that to be true as well. It sounds like the answer to this might be no, but are there any forms that you resist? Any? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I didn't think I was like a formalist. Like I didn't think I was someone that wrote sonnets or whatever. But then my um, editor pointed out that I had written a sonnet. <laughs> I didn't know that I'd written a sonnet, but there's a poem in, in this book called um, Snakes and Ladders. <gasps> what? Um, it just happens to be 14 lines. I love that poem, but I didn't count the lines. Mm-mm-mm-mm. So she's, you know, I, I love Felicity. She was really Felicity Plunkett, my editor, my developmental editor, editor on this book, um, was good at reminding me of sometimes you write a poem without being aware of form. You're just writing. You're just sort of following your inner ear. And then that comes in the editing process where you know, she's even, you know, she, she even in a really kind of stroke of genius as an editor, she put two poems together that were separate poems that fit together, um, which is the poem This Deadly Love. And the poem, the the two poems ha- kind of have the exact same lines and they look exactly the same. And, yeah, so they, they fit together. You know, I have more. I think I was. Ter- I'm turned off by so many forms because I see them as like quite white. But then, when you kind of think about how many black writers and how many Aboriginal writers have written sonnets, you can kind of go, no, you can just make it how you want to make it. You know, like that thing about rules are there to be broken. I guess. Mm. What about yourself? Is there any forms that you detest? Oh. Great question. See, I asked that question without being able to answer it myself. I Any form that requires really strict meter and rhyme, mm-hmm. I think doesn't suit the way that I write, but yeah. I really, really admire people who can write in those forms and come out with something that sounds wonderful and doesn't sound like you're not expecting that last word. I think that's a that's a real achievement and it, and it is completely beyond me. I think in in reading throat it felt familiar to me in the way that the form 
Um, you talked a little bit there about just, just having a gut reaction to what works. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, and that's my approach as well. And it's not particularly academic or scientific, no. but that's just the way that it happens for me. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, is there a poem you would like to read to finish us off with? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, I'll read. I guess I'll read Water on Water, yeah. Water on Water. The music of the water as it coves. We covert each other. Rings from the aquarium gift shop that change colour. Cover of sunlight does not show what happens after dark when the neighbours stone the pigeons to death on the beach, leave them with coffee cups over their heads to drown. She wears my hoodie over her eyes as she lies on my lap on the rocks above the water and says we have been both under and over and beside today and maybe she is suggesting we will also be in the water when we return to the city, that pool by the harbour, the drama of water on water. It is not loud if it's dying. We have brought a species to extinction. Let it flood and fill our minds with sound. There is always the anxiety of airports and trains where hands slip, where unnecessary promises are made where the views we share just go, just leave us until we can pick them up again. This time of the year, the trees keep giving us things, wattles, hibiscus flowers, banksia seed pods. I am loved. Mm -hmm.